<laughs> Welcome to the panel discussion on questioning one country, two systems, a case study on Hong Kong. Just as a reminder, uh, the fire exits are located at the side and at the back of this theater. If you hear the alarm, in case of emergency, please evacuate immediately. Uh, this panel is chaired by Professor Christopher Hughes, who is the head of International Relations Department here, and uh, Professor Simon Yong, Ms. Zhang Jieping, Dr. Mark Keating will also join this panel. This session also has a Q&A session at the end. I will now hand over to our moderator to give a formal introduction to the panel. Professor Hughes, please. Uh, thank you very much and welcome everybody. Uh, welcome to this panel on Hong Kong and I'm delighted this is going ahead. And we've got three really outstanding speakers. Um, the first is uh, Simon Young, Professor Young from Hong Kong University. He's a co-director of the Asia America Institute in Transnational Law. has a long and distinguished uh, career in the legal profession. And he's someone who's very interested in issues of law and human rights as well as issues of corruption, money laundering, white-collar crime. So that's someone who's really well qualified to talk about Hong Kong, right? Um, then we have uh, Ms. Jiang Jiaping, who's executive editor of iSun Affairs, which is a new online magazine in Hong Kong, and again, someone who is very much focused on civil society, and especially civil society in Hong Kong, politics, urbanization, and she has a very... Uh, an incredible record of awards for journalism. Uh, I won't go through them all because we haven't got time. <laughs> but um, I think the, one of the most recent ones was the Society of Publishers in Asia, Journalist of the Year, 2010. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of others. As I say, I haven't got time to go through them all. So welcome. And then uh, Dr. Multi Kiding from the University of Surrey. And uh, Dr. Kiding, um, I, I always say, is... is not just the best of the Hong Kong uh, academic experts we have in this country, but probably the only one, actually, who's really doing serious academic research in this country on Hong Kong. And by that, I mean going there, doing field work, interviews, not just talking about it from a distance. So we have a really great panel, and we're going to have to uh, speak, I think, for about 15 minutes each, and then have a Q&A after that. So I'll hang, hand over now to Professor Young. Uh, good morning, everyone, uh, and it's an honor to be here uh, to speak to you this morning. Um, thank you, Professor Hodge, for the introduction. Look, um, Mr. Libo has been missing for one month now, uh, and we really don't know much more uh, now uh, than when he was sort of first publicly uh, told, we were publicly told that uh, he was missing. Um, and I think many of you, if not all of you, are are closely following uh, these developments, uh, as you should be, uh, because it's turning out to be one of the most significant, uh, if not the significant, challenge to one country, two systems. Uh, and there are a lot of questions. In fact, 
it's, it's the fact that it's a mystery now, after one month, and it remains a mystery, that is very problematic. Um, and uh, the, 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 there are a lot of sort of speculations as to what's happened. It goes from sort of the worst-case scenario to something less worse. Uh, but uh, what I'm going to try to do today is to, to see what kinds of implications we can draw just based on the facts that we know, uh, and primarily based on the fact that it remains a mystery uh, today. Um, and I think most of you are familiar with the chronology, so I'm not going to dwell uh, too long on this. Right? I think uh, this story sort of comes into the picture just a few days after the, hand, uh, the, the new year. Uh, so December 30th is when Mr. Li Bo disappears uh, from his warehouse. He's last seen at his warehouse where he's collecting a few books. Uh, and then uh, uh, we're told that his wife makes a report to the police uh, on January the 1st. Um, now, of course, a, a single disappearance of a, of, a, of a Hong Kong permanent resident is not remarkable. Uh, but the fact that uh, four of his other associates in this bookstore had also disappeared shortly thereafter, of course, makes this uh, you know, an international sensation uh, and, uh, and mystery. Um, and, of course, uh, his co-owner, uh, Guo Minhai, disappears on vacation in Thailand. Um, and then the other three uh, managers, employees of the bookstore who are disappeared on the mainland. Right? In fact, it's these three individuals, in fact, we've heard very little about at all. And that, that adds to the mystery. Um, then uh, we're told that Mr. Lee somehow has been able to leave Hong Kong without the immigration checks. His home return permit is in Hong Kong. Uh, and apparently the Hong Kong immigration has no record of him leaving. Um, now, January 4th is when the wife withdraws the police report uh, because apparently uh, she has received a letter uh, uh, from Mr. Lee that convinces her enough that uh, he's uh, safe, that he's assisting an investigation uh, that's going to take a while, um, but uh, um, uh, he's, he's, he's fine, and she uh, withdraws the report. Uh, January 9th, you get a second letter from Mr. Lee. And, of course, this is just on the eve of the Hong Kong protests, right, because people in Hong Kong are now getting very, very concerned. And Mr. Lee says in the second letter, uh, don't protest. Uh, it's, uh, whatever's happened here is unconnected to my associates. I'm just assisting an investigation. The protests go ahead nonetheless, right? Quite a good, decent turnout, 3,500 to 6,000. And then we have this amazing development that Mr. Guo gets on CCTV admitting uh, to having committed a vehicle homicide about 12 years ago, and that's why he has voluntarily left Thailand, where he was on holiday apparently, uh, to face justice uh, some, for something that happened 12 years ago. And then there's a third letter from Mr. Lee sort of almost condemning his friend uh, saying he's immoral, he's been involved in other crimes, things he never knew about. Um, a week later, uh, Mr. Lee then appears again, yet another remarkable development in a photo uh, with his wife, uh, because the wife has been able to see him on, on the mainland. Right? Again, the Security Bureau have not admitted any kind of involvement. The Security Bureau on the mainland have simply said that he's on the mainland. That's, of course, something that everyone knew. 
Uh, and again, there's another letter which says that these are private matters, that it concerns the company's internal affairs. And most recently, the Guangdong governor, he wasn't going to make a comment, but when asked by uh, reporters, he refers to Mr. Lee getting a practical and fair judgment. Right? Because up to now, we've been told that he's just a witness in an investigation. Why would he be getting a judgment? Right? And then there's reference actually to, I think it was in this jurisdiction, the Sunday Times uh, report about the Guangdong Action Plan. Not 100% confirmed, but some reference to a plan from Beijing to suppress these publications, even if it requires going overseas, and Hong Kong and Taiwan is specifically mentioned. Two other developments, of course, is uh, the security bureau, or the mainland security bureau has finally given a one-page sort of official statement, basically saying, we can't tell you anything more about this matter, uh, that um, uh, what we've told you is, uh, is all we know, uh, that uh, he's on the mainland, uh, and that you shouldn't sort of assume uh, anything about it. Uh, and lastly, of course, our own Secretary for Security in Hong Kong also says, don't assume that there's an abduction uh, in this case. So the mystery, of course, numerous, numerous questions. Was there an abduction? Was there a forced return? Even if there wasn't, uh, you know, how, was there something done on the part of the mainland authorities to induce his return? What is this investigation that we're talking about. Is it, if it's about the vehicle homicide, how is it at all that Mr. Lee and the other three are somehow involved? Uh, and what about those other three? Why haven't we heard anything more about that? This practical and fair judgment, what does that mean? And then, of course, what exactly is the information that has been exchanged between the Gongdong and the Hong Kong authorities? So far, we've been told nothing. Really, we get the impression that uh, it's been said that the Guangdong authorities have sidelined the Hong Kong police despite numerous sort of requests for further information. But perhaps there has been some information shared. Why else would our Secretary of Security say, don't assume that it's an abduction? Perhaps he knows something more. But nothing has come out of, on that. And finally, of course, you know, why haven't they just come out and said that they are after the books? Uh, we've seen, I think there was a Swedish activist recently uh, who was convicted and, uh, and has been expelled uh, quite clearly for his activism. Why couldn't they just come out and say that here? Perhaps they will at some point, but uh, the present is not the right occasion. Now, of course, it's always very difficult to draw any kind of conclusions when the facts are not clear. Uh, so what I'm trying to do here is simply based on what we know already, are there any kinds of inferences or implications that we can draw about uh, the situation, right? And uh, I have identified four uh, such inference and implication. Uh, the first, of course, is uh, this is a situation, the mystery, that doesn't speak well about cross-border police cooperation. Um, there's re repeated references to something known as the reciprocal notification mechanism that was agreed in 2001. Right? I've had a closer look at this document. Um, this is an interesting document. It refers at the outset uh, to uh, the importance of mutual respect, mutual support, non-intervention with each side's law enforcement activities. Right? And it's an administrative arrangement. It's not a legal arrangement. Um, and what uh, is involved in this arrangement is that if there was a Hong Kong permanent resident on the mainland who is under criminal compulsory measures, those are the words of the agreement, criminal compulsory measures, uh, 
Then the other side will notice, notify Hong Kong authorities. But not just that the fact that they're under compulsory measures, but also, this is important, the content of the notification includes the date of the detention, the suspected offenses, the type of compulsory measures, the place where the compulsory measures are taking place, and the enforcement agency concerned. Right? So far we have had non, none of that information, yet Mr. Mr. Lee himself says that he's assisting an investigation. Uh, and so it would seem to me that there are some problems with this mechanism, yet uh, the Hong Kong authorities and, and the mainland authorities have said that there's nothing wrong with the mechanism so far. I think it needs a, a review. Um, second infer inference that we can draw uh, is something that I've written about in, in the South China Morning Post, uh, that I think this incident has shown a gray area in our basic law. Now, clearly, if Mr. Lee was abducted by mainland officials, right, there would be a clear, serious breach of the basic law, right, because there's violation of Hong Kong law, there's a violation of the human rights protections in the basic law, and, of course, there's a violation of this respect for the other side's uh, uh, law enforcement agencies. Uh, however, if it's not an abduction, and it's perhaps, say, uh, uh, a chat in a, in a cha chante, right, or a phone call, right, <laughs> or it's some uh, sort of meeting, uh, and information is given to Mr. Lee that induces him to go voluntarily. I put that in quotations, right? Uh, that's not so clear that there's a basic law violation here, right? In fact, as I highlight in the article, there are many uh, mainland officials in Hong Kong. You've got the liaison office. You've got the PLA, the, the People's Liberation Army. You've got the Foreign Affairs Ministry. They are there on official authorized basis, Right? To what extent can they also engage in this kind of investigation? Again, quotations. Um, and that is a gray area which I hope could be addressed because of this uh, situation. Thirdly, uh, no doubt about this, the continued loss of public confidence. Mr. Lee, Raymond Lee has mentioned already uh, this sort of uh, uh, growing loss of confidence in one country systems. This adds to it. There are implications for migration. An article from the South China Morning Post, uh, you know, unremarkable article except for the fact that you have parents who are saying, uh, you know, we're really thinking about sending our children to study abroad, and we don't mind if they just stay there uh, because of these recent events. Um, and, uh, of course, the implications for the LegCo election, which Mr. Lee mentioned earlier. Uh, of course, uh, look, uh, People, uh, the Hong Kong government and the mainland government has, has repeatedly said, you know, if you, if you don't like the filibustering, if you don't like what the pan-democrats are doing, then vote them out. Well, this incident will clearly show that they're not going to be voted out uh, because people perceive the pan-democrats really as their only vehicle to have their voice sort of expressed in the legislature and before the government. Uh, so that's going to continue. The filibustering is going to continue. In fact, the filibustering is now, I think, a means to get the Chinese government's attention. Right? It's their only way now to change the leadership in Hong Kong, right? because we don't have the, uh, universal suffrage. You have a body of 1,200 choosing the chief executive. This is the only way to sort of get uh, the mainland attention. And the last, of course, uh, uh, implication is how this might jeopardize national interests. And the issue uh, in particular, of course, is this issue about this railway uh, that is hooked up to the mainland high-speed rail system, right? but is, is, is it becoming a, a fiasco in Hong Kong because, one, it was under-budgeted. They need another 20 billion Hong Kong dollars, 
and only the legislators can grant them that authority. Right? But now there's the issue about the co-location, meaning the idea of how can we make this an efficient railway system? Well, you want to have a, a single sort of one-stop clearance of immigration and customs. Right? And the idea is that you do that in Hong Kong. The only way to do that, of course, is to bring mainland officials in Hong Kong to do that, exercising enforcement power. Right? This incident, of course, has pretty well, I think, torpedoed uh, this idea. And now the uh, government you see in the article there is talking about we just have to you know, go with the two-location, two-clearance. Uh, and one can imagine the inefficiencies, inefficiencies of that. And that's assuming that the LegCo will approve the budgeting. Now, to conclude, um, I want to just sort of make some general reflections about the, the implications for one country, two systems. Um, and uh, Raymond Lee has earlier uh, referred to remarks by uh, Mr. Jiang Xiaoming, our uh, current uh, leader of the liaison office. But I uh, prefer to go to Deng Xiaoping uh, because, of course, he is sort of the architect of one country, two systems. And he, he, hasn't, he, didn't say, he didn't say a lot about one country, two systems. But what he did say in a number of speeches has been conveniently collected in this book, I'm sure many of you will know about. It's about 60 pages long. And it's a fascinating to always go back and, and re read what he said about it because he actually talked about the possible conflict of freedom of expression in Hong Kong and how it might conflict with national interests and national security. Right? And, and in fact, that seems to be very relevant here. There are two sort of spots where he talks about this. Here he's talking about Taiwan institutions in Hong Kong. They will be allowed to criticize the Communist Party. That won't bother us because the Communist Party cannot be toppled by criticism. However, they should take care not to create disturbances in Hong Kong or create two Chinas. What exactly does disturbance mean? Well, he comes back to this in another speech five, about three years later before the drafting committee of the basic law. And he says, after 1997, we shall allow Hong Kong people to criticize the Chinese Communist Party in China, the Communist Party in China. What if they turn their words into action, trying to convert Hong Kong into a base of opposition to the mainland under the pretext of democracy? He wasn't a big fan of Western democracy. Then we would have, to choose, we would have no choice but to intervene. Right? What does he mean by intervene? First, the administrative bodies in Hong Kong should intervene. Mainland troops stationed there would not necessarily be used. They would, be, uh, they would be used only if there were disturbances, serious disturbances. We saw that Occupy Central in 2014 was not serious enough for them to be used. Anyway, intervention of some sort would be necessary. And I think in some sort is referring back to the administrative bodies in Hong Kong. So the final question I leave you with then is, if it was felt that the books were jeopardizing the fundamental interests of the country, sufficient to justify some sort of intervention, then why was the intervention not left to the Hong Kong administration at first, first instance? Uh, and with that, I conclude. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Young. Um, that, that was excellent. And now we hand over to Zhang Jiaping. magazine's cover, which, sorry, um, 
the left one is in 1997 and the right one is in sorry why okay china um, Eleven years ago, I went to Hong Kong from mainland China, and before I got there, I think the, the, my most impression of this city is a middle-aged singer named Zhang Mingmin. Uh, I don't know if there is anyone know him here. <laughs> I think the <laughs> my, my parents will know it, <laughs> because um, my parents loved his songs very much and often send them in karaoke. So I, I, heard, I, heard, I heard him always uh, in, in my childhood. And it is so-called, this so-called famous Hong Kong, uh, sorry for, the, for this one. Computer's got a life of its own. And this so-called famous uh, Hong Kong singer uh, wore a gray suit, uh, equipped with a woolen uh, vest and a scarf when when he first showed up in in the uh, a bit uh, uh, in front of the Chinese mainland Chinese audience. And uh, uh, he's not very—he's not handsome, as you as you can say. <laughs> but the elegance of his clothing, along with his lyrics, charmed so many people at that time in 1980s. He sang, uh, "This is the lyric: uh, with rivers and uh, mountains only appearing in my dream, I haven't got close to my countries for years. Although wearing foreign clothing, my heart is still a Chinese heart." Whenever I go, I never forgot my Chinese heart. Yes, the, this song is called My Chinese Heart. For many, oh, wow, wow. And for many people in mainland China, uh, the charm of this song, I think, was not only in, uh, was not only in its uh, patriotic sentiment. What, what, what's wrong with my PPT? Uh, it's, it, 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 it is, it, it uh, I think some can we fix it somehow? Or does anyone okay. know what's wrong? Maybe I'll just here. Yeah. I think you have to stand away from the computer. Okay, stay away. <laughs> <laughs> and you need the microphone. Okay, so I can help you. Okay. Thank you. No, it's okay. Yeah, but 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 more, uh, it, you know, it, the the his. <laughs> 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 what's wrong? <laughs> Okay. 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 Oh, yeah. I see. <laughs> uh, his charm is not just uh, staying in, in the patriotic sen sentiment, but more importantly is that uh, it offered uh, all the mainland Chinese people an indirect but very powerful imagination about the outside world. Uh, so during the past decades, for many. For many Chinese people who never went abroad, this song and this singer uh, have occupied their entire imagination of the overseas Chinese, including those people in Hong Kong and Taiwan. 
but after I moved to Hong Kong, I found some, something very weird. First, none of the Hong Kong people I know had ever heard of Zhang Mingming. Uh, of course, of course, they have never heard the song "My Chinese Heart," either. Uh, then I later, uh, then I later discovered that uh, during the China-British negotiation uh, in the mid 1980s, uh, nearly 60% of Hong Kong people chose not to be handed over to China, but would rather maintain status quo. Uh, I think most of Chinese uh, mainland Chinese people, even till today. Uh, they don't know this uh, unpleasant truth at all. Uh, then how did Zhang Mingming come out in the 1980s if, if he is not actually the famous Hong Kong singer? I found that when, where he first appeared was at the uh, CCTV uh, Chinese New Year Gala of 1984. It's just like the, the photo shows. Uh, a show watched by over 100 million Chinese audience it was there he first sang the song, My Chinese Heart. And it was the right time when Chinese-British negotiation on Hong Kong's future went, to, went into statement. The, fa the famous Hong Kong singer's performance successfully united the whole China's uh, imagination, opinion, and emotional sentiment of a Hong Kong that was so eager to return back to its mother's em embrace. And uh, this is Hong Kong's image in, in, uh, from China's way, from China's perspective. Hong Kong remains an important chess piece in, its inter in China's international arrangement, economically, di diplomatically, and politically and culturally. The best for, the ch for a chess piece is to stay ob obedient, to focus on making money, and not to think too much. But on the other hand, the seven million uh, Hong Kong people have been living in the city in real, in their real life. But, and with years passing by, uh, their self-awareness is awakening. To my mind, this is the root of all conflicts between China and Hong Kong uh, today. To understand the conflict, we, I, I, I do think that we need to go back to history. But I, I will brief it in a, in a very quick way about the, the tension between Hong Kong and the, and the mainland China. This is in 1950s. Uh, you can see in, in uh, actually after the World War II, uh, Chiang Kai-shi, Jiang Jie-shi, uh, has already passed a message to Churchill, 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 yeah, and hoping the British to return Hong Kong, but Churchill uh, declined. And the, but at the same time, Mo, Mao Zedong at Yan'an has told the uh, three Western journalists who had been to Hong Kong before, he, he, he told like this, no rush. He, he, he said that China is so big with many places not managed at all, uh, with many places not managed well, why rush to get a little place like that? And in, in the 1950s, Hong Kong was a chess piece inserted by the communist China into the capitalist world, which Mao didn't want to take back soon. And at the same time, Zhou Enlai uh, already, uh, all the time mentioned several times to, to use Hong Kong to attract uh, foreign investment, gain foreign currency, and turn Hong Kong into an international port. He said to well protect Hong Kong's capitalism, not to destroy it. Uh, this is in the 1950s. And then we get the uh, great Revo the, the cultural revolution.
when China launched the Cultural Revolution, which promoted Hong Kong's leftists to consider it a good time to start their own Cultural Revolution too, uh, to start their own anti-colonialism movement. So they took the uh, Cultural Revolution as their own slogan to make their violent protest uh, against the British Hong Kong government. You can see in the, in, the, in, the, in the photos here. The movement caused panic in the society and was cracked by uh, British Hong Kong government. What made, but what made them most uh, heartbroken is that it was also strongly against by Beijing. Uh, Zhou Enlai instructed that Hong Kong absolutely shouldn't conduct the so-called cultural revolution at all. It should accept the reality of being ruled by the British and protect well Hong Kong's capitalism for China. And then we get to the 1980s. Uh, as we all know, one country, two system was not uh, initially uh, pre uh, designed for Hong Kong. It's, it was designed initially for Taiwan. And uh, from the, just as uh, Professor Yang just said now, uh, Deng Xiaoping, who was struggling to open up the enclosed China, he attempted to use this vague but open-ended concept to overcome the biggest obstacle between China and the U.S., the Taiwan issue. And then, and the Hong Kong issue has not been in Beijing's agenda until 70, uh, 1978, when the Hong Kong governor raised, the, uh, raised that the lease of Hong Kong new territory would be expired in 1997. Then four years later, Deng Xiaoping decided to transfer his uh, whole plan for Taiwan to Hong Kong and to use Hong Kong as an experiment and, a demo, and try to use it as a demonstration to eventually resolve Taiwan problem. And in this situation, Hong Kong intellectuals and the progressive students proposed to use the democratic political system to guarantee the one country, two system scheme to be uh, smoothly implemented. And then the, the biggest turning point in the history comes the June 4th, the Tiananmen movement, the June 4th. It, 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 it is the most uh, important turning point to China and Hong Kong relationship uh, uh, in the before, na, be, before the umbrella movement. And uh, the Hong Kong society rea reacted very strongly to China's Tiananmen movement in 1989. Over one million people marched on the street. It's in Hong Kong, it's not in Beijing, the, the, the picture showed. And, uh, but after June 4th, uh, their confidence of the whole country was dashed, and uh, their whole patriotic passion is frozen, uh, and the, the effect lasts until today. But to smooth up, uh, Deng Xiaoping just promised so-called houses, horses still racing, dancing still carrying on, and, uh, and, uh, during the, and the, during the few years after 1997, the Hong Kong, uh, it's true, uh, the people, except there was no democracy yet, Hong Kong's legislation, independence, freedom of speech, and the media uh, was all, was, were all guaranteed. But many people, many people who used to left Hong Kong before came back and enjoyed the, uh, enjoy the economic growth, the economic bloom, and people became increasingly confident about Chinese government and the one country, two, one country, two systems. But things slowly changed in 
2000, in after 2000. Uh, after the Article 23 item, uh, after the Article, 2000, uh, Article 2, uh, 23 incident, Beijing adjusted its Hong Kong policy. And uh, he, uh, Beijing added, uh, it used to be a uh, uh, policy like no interference uh, as Beijing used to Hong Kong. But after 2003, Beijing added a pro-achievement after no interference. Uh, Hong Kong's pro-democratic uh, groups started their annual demonstration since uh, 2003 and calling Beijing to fulfill the promise of basic law and guarantee the universal suffrage. And then we get the young generation here after 10 years after Hong Kong uh, came back to, to China. And uh, also in 2012, Xi Jinping came to power and changed Hong Kong policy from the uh, early no interference, sorry. Uh, through, uh, from the early no interference, a later pro-achievement eventually to the total governance centered with the focus on national security. Meantime, he launched a massive anti-corruption campaign and uh, repressed the development of civil society and centralized the power with an, in, in, with, with an extreme extent. On the other hand, in Hong Kong, the generation who grew up after 1997 began to participate in the civic movement. Joshua Wong, uh, just like the photo shows, he was uh, 16 years old in, in 2012. Uh, uh, they grew up in local Hong Kong with stronger awareness of self-governance and their previous, than their previous generation. They had a greater emotional detachment from China, and, then, and they tend to be more critical of China. Then we can see the, what we, we have been in the, these two years, uh, the 2014, uh, the pro-demo... Um, the Hong Kong scholar, the pro-democracy Hong Kong scholar launched Occupy Central movement with an expectation that Xi Jinping might con conduct Hong Kong, uh, China's political reform. They hoped to use the movement to push Beijing to guarantee Hong Kong the promised universal suffrage. But after one year's preparation, uh, the movement transformed into umbrella movement that hundreds of thousands of Hong Kong people occupied the street triggered, but which triggered Beijing's most severe uh, political control of Hong Kong in history. The umbrella movement didn't gain any result and was not cracked down either. Uh, this made millions of people into a great loss and a disappointment. Uh, unlike their previous generation, the young people who felt lost no longer expect China to start its own political reform, nor they believe China would give Hong Kong an alternative space. They are hopeless and radical. They raised their slogan, which was never have been seen before in Hong Kong, independence. Uh, in the political reality, although this ideal is very impossible to be realized, but, and, and only a very small group of uh, Hong Kong people really have this belief, but it shows the tendency of Hong Kong's young generation who are no longer acting in, a, in the alignment with Beijing. 
it's like the, the magazine, it said uh, Hong Kong as a nation should decide its, uh, des- uh, should decide its, itself, by its, all by itself. And uh, you know, in today, Zhang Mingming has never been completed, has all been completely forgotten in now. Because in, in, main, in mainland China, under the guidance of the official media, the mainlanders are holding the worst impression of Hong Kong ever. Uh, Hong Kong used to be wealthy, their mainland, but China has risen up, and Hong Kong's sense of superiority has lost. So it felt uh, psychologically unbalanced. So it is always unsatisfied with mainland and even wants to be independent. It's, it's all, the, uh, you, all the things you can hear in, when you are in mainland China, their impressions about Hong Kong. But in Hong Kong, the city's fear and the dis- dissatisfaction w- uh, of mainland also reached its peak since uh, 1989. How have uh, China and Hong Kong has arrived in this state? I think Beijing has always been thinking of Hong Kong as an instrument. Uh, what the seven million Hong Kong people really care is not Beijing's concern. But on the other hand, Hong Kong also has its own Im- imagined Beijing. Hong Kong's uh, progressive force has always been actively trying to dance with Beijing. They hoped the socialist China, the socialist China, could change the capitalist Hong Kong in the 1960s. They hope they could democrate. They could. They hope they could get the same democracy together with China in the 1980s. But every time they ended up with frustration. Every time China would strengthen the conservative force in Hong Kong according to its own need and the changes. And today, Hong Kong government works closer to to China to immerse it into the economic program of China's rise. But on the contrary. On, on the other side, the non-official sectors are moving further and further away. For the first time, a political force to, totally against China is emerging in Hong Kong. Uh, personally, I, don't know, I, I, I do not know who will win the government or the, or the independence force. But, uh, but to, to, uh, in my mind, maybe ne- neither side will win. So it's... Uh, it's it, it, it should be Hong Kong's tragedy if, 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 if neither side will win. So I will just end up like that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And sorry about the computer. You struggled on very well <laughs> through that. It was worth because the pictures were great. Thank, Thank you. All right, okay, thank you very much uh, for inviting me uh, to this uh, very interesting um, forum. And uh, I will talk about um, uh, some of the issues I've been researching for uh, quite a long time. One of them is uh, Hong Kong identity. And as you maybe know, uh, one of the most recent um, surveys by the Hong Kong University has found that uh, 40% of uh, Hong Kong residents identify as Hong Kongese alone and not as Chinese. And identification as Chinese is currently standing at uh, 18%. So this is the lowest uh, in, in record so far since the, since the handover. And so far, whenever I looked at identity and I talked to political parties about it, they said, well, we are not like Taiwan. We identity doesn't really matter. But it seems like uh, things are, are changing now. Uh, in Hong Kong, and um, 
Ms. Zhang was already alluding to this, and I tried to uh, come up with, the, with, with an idea of why is this the case. So the, my, my main argument is that um, the delusion, uh, disillusion, disillusion with the democratic uh, progress um, leads now to a focus on identity building in Hong Kong. So I will talk a little bit about Hong Kong's unique systems, but very briefly, and then talk about um, the 10, uh, 2010 uh, developments further and uh, about the rise of uh, localism. So when we talk about Hong Kong, Hong Kong has been described as a, as a hybrid uh, regime, competitive authoritarianism, or illiber illiberal uh, democracy. Uh, Ms. Zhang talked about already about the uh, Sino-British Joint Declaration, uh, as well as uh, Professor Young. Um, the idea is that Hong Kong is this um, semi-democratic enclave in an authoritarian um, uh, country, so this makes it, of course, uh, very interesting. And um, as mentioned, it has been guaranteed a high degree of autonomy, and Hong Kong people should re uh, should um, rule Hong Kong. So, in the Basic Law, there's the uh, the promise of democracy. Um, there are civil liberties and uh, freedom still existing in, in Hong Kong. There are free and fair elections of part of the legislators, so half of it is directly elected, half of it is in more or less indirectly elected through um, functional constituencies. At the same time, we have a situation where there are very, very um, severe institutional restrictions. Um, the whole system is executive-led, so we have an intentionally weak legislator and a non-directly elected uh, chief executive. There's no party law, and there should not be a, a ruling party in, in Hong Kong, which makes everything quite difficult. So as uh, my uh, previous speakers have already very nicely um, uh, sp spoken about, uh, the Hong Kong experience is very different from uh, what, the, what uh, China um, defines uh, democracy. So Hong Kong, you have the experience of free elections, uh, there's wide acceptance of several uh, Western values, liberal and democratic civil uh, society, and even if you do not agree uh, with um, democracy, um, most people in Hong Kong, and then maybe don't understand the concept of rule of law in very details, they are, I think everybody is uh, very committed about the idea of fairness. So this makes, uh, to, no matter to whom you talk, different uh, strata is always, we are, this is a fair, fair society, so if something happens, uh, you will be treated uh, very fair. And, um, and democracy was seen as, democracy and rule of law as keeping this um, Hong Kong autonomy uh, from uh, any, any changes. Well, when we look at uh, democracy from the uh, Chinese definition, PR Chinese uh, definition, it is more a means uh, to achieve checks and balances and thus efficiency. So when you look at um, the Chinese um, uh, reaction to the movements in Taiwan and, and Hong Kong, you can always see that yeah, people are unhappy with the economic developments, and if we sort out uh, these economic developments, there will be no... Um, uh, uh, protest and no, no uh, movements. And I think, as Ms. Zhang has already had, uh, said, uh, this uh, shows a fundamental misunderstanding of uh, the ideas, uh, uh, especially of the younger generation in Hong Kong uh, and in Taiwan. Um, when we talk about uh, Hong Kong's political developments, we have to um, understand a united front work uh, in, in Hong Kong. So um, what was already said, the um, more forceful engagement of uh, 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 PRC uh, China and uh, liaison office after 2003. 
What we can see for long term already since the 1980s is the establishment of um, patron-client relations on different, uh, different levels, meaning that we have uh, pro-establishment the pro camp, the DAB uh, especially, but FTU and other groups as well, uh, establishing a lot of um, very good relations uh, on, the, on the grassroots, um, uh, often a lot of services from haircut services to uh, free food or uh, legal advice, yeah, and therefore binding um, uh, or creating these relations uh, with the constituencies. Uh, secondly, um, you can see a, a range of uh, institutional amendments and constitutional reforms uh, who have led to uh, more focus or more emphasis for the uh, local level, the district councils. And of course, these are then easier uh, to be uh, manipulated regard, uh, with regard to patron-client relations. So the 2010 uh, election reform package is one of uh, these cases. Uh, and as I said already, we have much more direct involvement of the liaison office in, um, in Hong Kong affairs, uh, going from vote allocation to now creating fake independence. So maybe you remember uh, Paul Zer directly being instructed by uh, the liaison office. And if you, if you have followed the last uh, election, 2015, even trying to say, uh, uh, create fake social movement um, um, candidates. Um, this United Front um, uh, work uh, has to be seen also in the context, uh, context of uh, mainlandization, meaning that after 2003 through SEPA, for example, this massive uh, uh, push for, by the Hong Kong government and the Chinese government uh, for social, economic, and cultural integration with the Chinese mainland. And, of course, uh, individual tourism from uh, uh, mainland China is just one of these uh, aspects. So, as I said, um, the, my main argument here is that this combination of mainlandization and United Front, or what we can call, might cause a call uh, regressive democratization, is led to a significant miscalculation of uh, the regime. And um, as Ms. Zhang said, um, a lot of, especially younger, gener uh, younger generation in Hong Kong, is very frustrated. Uh, with uh, the economic developments, uh, the political developments, and my main argument is particularly with the uh, democratic developments. And they do not focus on democratization anymore. So the, the idea of that uh, democracy and universal suffrage is the, the main cleavage uh, in Hong Kong, I think uh, there's, there's a shift in the younger generation, and they focus now on what we call localism, or building of a Hong Kong identity. So looking at a Hong Kong identity, solidifying what is Hong Kong identity first, and then going towards uh, democracy. So the idea of the moderate Democrats from the 1980s, that Hong Kong will lead uh, Chinese um, democratic reform is gone. Yeah, so you remember this uh, uh, two years ago, I think, when we had the June 4th commemoration, the alternative June 4th commemoration, saying we don't care about China anymore, we focus on, on Hong Kong first. And this is exactly what is happening in, in uh, Taiwan for a long time. So the, when, when I talk to um, people from the Sunflower Movement, they, they said, uh, when we invited them here over, they said, we don't care about China. You never helped us with democratizing. Taiwan, why should we help you? Yeah. And this is exactly what is happening in, in Hong Kong. And um, I want to again mention this uh, 2000 uh, 
uh, tend the watershed with the anti-expressrail uh, uh, links. So uh, very nice that Professor Young uh, talked about the disaster of this uh, uh, expressrail. And at that time, a lot of people said it will be much more expensive than you anticipate, and it turned out it will. Um, the key to remember here is that um, when the uh, debate in the LECHCA was held, um, it became, I think, for the first time for a lot of people apparent that they don't have any voice. The LECHCO, the directed, uh, directly elected uh, members, they're in a the minority. They can't, um, uh, no, not in a minority, but uh, the pro-Democrats are in a structural minority. They can't uh, uh, stop these, um, uh, this rail link because of the functional constituencies. And um, then the 2010 constitutional reform debate again made these uh, institutional dysfunctional is very, very apparent, and it also created this, uh, um, this perception that actually the Hong Kong government doesn't care about Hong Kong, it cares about what mainland want, uh, the mainland China, China wants. So what we can see then later is uh, these social movements are, are coming up, um, and uh, moderates, uh, the moderate Democrats are continuing to, con to be, to be sidelined and uh, marginalized because in the 2010, especially 2012 legislative elections, we can see the rise of um, uh, radical political parties like uh, People Power, for example, at that time. Yeah. A lot of uh, moderates were very uh, disillusioned uh, with the ideas of reforms because they agreed on this reform package in 2010, but it didn't bring them any good. Yeah. And uh, the liaison office, the management um, here of elections, um, does intensifies. At the same time, 2011, 2012, this idea of localism emerges. Yeah? So initially, a very small group of former social, social activists around uh, uh, Tinwan uh, create this idea of Hong Kong as a city-state and focusing very much on ethno-cultural aspects. So Hong, preserving Hong Kong's unique culture um, from mainlandization. And uh, it should be part of this larger uh, Chinese entity, but Hong Kong should, should be uh, separate. But it's focused on uh, culture um, um, side. Initially, not many people uh, looked at this idea, but it coincided with these anti-mainland sentiments in around 2012, where we can see, for example, you remember the anchor babies and, of course, uh, the milk powder um, uh, uh, and apparel trader are starting uh, at that time. We talked already about the umbrella movement. I want to just ho highlight one point here, um, that although it didn't have any results and the movement split, I think what it contributed, very, very important, is the spread of this localism idea in the different camps around uh, Hong Kong. This was discussed uh, quite significantly. And we have these so-called umbrella uh, soldiers, so people who were attached to the movement, stand in the district council election in 2015, not necessarily promoting democracy or standing for democracy. They were saying, we just want to resist uh, mainland, uh, mainlandization. We want to give an alternative um, to, uh, uh, to the DAB, and they all were uh, attached to ideas of localism. So for the last three minutes, what are we talking about when we talk about uh, localism? So we have all these very interesting uh, groups. So, um, and uh, localism is... Uh, seen as a tool to construct identity. And we can look at it in maybe in terms of a framework uh, 
where we have two lines. Uh, one is between ethno-cultural uh, identity on one hand side and uh, civic on the other side. And they are aligned somewhere on the spectrum with all of them having elements of ethno-cultural, like language, uh, saying, well, we have different script even there. When you type the computer, you can write all these different characters. Um, and also civic uh, elements like, for example, a rule of law. At the same time, they're different, uh, very different in terms of uh, what is their vision for Hong Kong, from right, ranging from independence to returning to the UK as a dominion, uh, just keeping the status quo, uh, one country, two system, real autonomy, um, or some kind of city state. Yeah. What is also important is that uh, localism is now used as election tool. So we can see this Xiang uh, Bintu, this uh, group, Hong Kong First. By um, uh, it's by Claudia Moe and Gary Fan, yeah, and they 2012 they just jumped on this bandwagon of localism. While we also have a very interesting people, and I just want to mention here my uh, friend here Zhong Chu Yangtze, very very interesting, is happy campaigning, so deconstructing this uh, whole idea of participating in elections, and they seem to be very odd characters. But when you talk to them, they have very very clear uh, visions of what Hong Kong should be and what is a Hong Kong identity. And so my, my point is that, that this will not go away. So the Hong Kong um, autonomy, when, was, when we see this is, was the main concern for most uh, people, uh, and we thought uh, democracy and rule of law will safeguard this. Now, people are disillusioned with the fight for universal suffrage. It's not going anywhere. Uh, China is um, reinterpreting what is universal suffrage, what is democracy. So what we do now as Hong Kong people, we focus on our interpretation of what is Hong Kong identity, what is localism, because this can't be challenged or can't be reinterpreted by, the, um, by, the, by, by China. Yeah. And um, the, as my, uh, to my, come to come back, my conclusion, this is, of course, uh, bringing up a lot of uh, challenges for Beijing. Yeah. For the first time, we see a grassroots approach to identity construct, not the top-down, the Hong Kong government or the Chinese government tried to make everybody into uh, Chinese. Now we're looking at uh, people defining for themselves what is uh, Hong Kong uh, identity, what is localism. It will, I, I believe, it will change Hong Kong's political spectrum from a new cleavage along identity lines. Um, it, was, it does challenge Hong Kong, uh, it does challenge Chinese nationalism. Um, it will make it very difficult for the United Front to co-opt these people, yeah, because identity is very, very um, difficult uh, to uh, reinterpret in this regard. And maybe uh, we see uh, some kind of uh, nation-state uh, building. Okay, that's it for me. Thank you very much. Well, um, thank you to all the speakers for keeping to time amazingly well, which always makes the chair's job much easier. So thank you. We had three excellent presentations covering law, historical perspective, identity, politics, so many issues raised. So we have now about 25 minutes, half an hour, for questions and answers. So if anyone has a question they'd like to start off with. Uh, yes? Yeah, we have microphones, do we? Yeah. Thank you. Hello. Uh, as a native Hong Konger, I have one have an observation that I want to, to ask. What do you guys think? Um, I think what I have I recently, um, recently but for a while now, observed from the online uh, sphere is that Hong Kong has always been a colony, 
and it's still a colony. It was before 1907, it was a British colony, and after 1907, it was a Chinese colony. And why? It's because, firstly, the, colon the colonial governance structure remains, and actually, the Hong Kong government actually do not have the power to screen any immigrants coming in, any Chinese immigrants coming into Hong Kong. I mean, yes, there is a quota system, but the approval power was actually lies with mainland. Actually, if you look at a lot of uh, discussions, one of those are uh, pan-democrats and all those, this localism is asked for the approval for those um, Chinese immigrants, um, the reviewing power basically to be given to the Hong Kong um, authorities. Um, yes. So um, not just about that, and of course. Okay, could you keep yeah. it brief? Because that really um, is. We, we, what no, do you think about we, this? We're very um, squeezed for time. We don't have a lot. What do you so think about this, this new colonialism view? Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm not sure if there was a question there. Was there? I don't think so. It's more of a comment. Do you think? Do you I think mean, Hong Kong is a Chinese colony? That, we can ask for more questions. Um, uh, any other questions? Um, no. no uh, yes, sir. Uh, good morning. Um, I have a question for both uh, Professor Yang and uh, Dr. Kendin from University of Surrey. Uh, my question is, from the case study, the, the uh, protests uh, happened in, in Hong Kong last, uh, last year, can we learn a lesson about the failure of a Western democratic system? Firstly, uh, we have to know that uh, Hong Kong used a similar electoral law uh, to, uh, similar to the USA, which is the, the chief executive is chosen by the electoral, uh, college, electoral college. So in, in, in Hong Kong, it's like uh, election committees. And those people are not original people. They are like businessmen and um, they're powerful people. And this make, I think the weak government, that pro-business government in the Hong Kong actually caused a huge inequality and um, social uh, divisions in Hong Kong. Do you think, I think this thing happened in USA as well, and when the, the president of the United States is not chosen by original people, they're chosen by politicians, businessmen, and people from the electoral college. It's similar things happen in Hong Kong. Do you think this is the failure of the Western democratic system, and this should not be blamed on the, the mainland China and the, the opportunity and the business uh, development happening in China. You can't say like rich people go to I, Hong Kong and buy I houses. Think, I think we got the question there then. Yes. So is it the fault of the... Well, I mean, I think it is a good question. You know, we assume the American democratic system works well and um, maybe it has its problems too. Um, do, you, do you want to respond to that? Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Okay, let me just begin... Uh, uh, with a response. In fact, with this gentleman first, I, mean, I think there are quite important differences between the British colonial political system and the post-97 uh, system, primarily because um, you have a lot more citizen or resident involvement in the political system. Uh, you didn't have that in, under the British system. In fact, I think it is because that you have this inchoate, uh, in, in criminal law we talk about inchoate offenses, meaning uh, incomplete system of uh, you know, democracy that has exacerbated the problems, right? that the people want to have more 
right? Whereas under the British colonial system, I mean, we, we got whatever we, that was given to us. Uh, and so I think that's a very important uh, difference. So our aspirations are all much, much bigger and greater. Uh, and then when they're frustrated, then I think we see the consequences. The, uh, this, this gentleman here about, I don't want to comment too much on the U.S. system, um, but it seems to me that you assumed that the existing system of electing the chief executive somehow uh, is similar to the U.S. system. Um, well, I don't think so. I mean, I think one important difference is that the business influence is direct, right? It's explicit, right? That uh, the functional constituencies, if you ever study them, and they elect half the legislators, um, it, it is systemic that you are given votes to the business elite and to the professionals as well, right? So there's a constituency. I belong to actually two. I belong to the, the lawyer's constituency and the educator's constituency. So I can actually choose where I want to have my vote. Of course, I choose the lawyer's constituency because there's only 6,000 voters, whereas if I chose the educators, I mean, I'd be competing with you know, tens of thousands, right? So I mean, that is... No, as far as I understand, not the American system. So there are important differences. Uh, okay. Yes. Um, I think I just can uh, supplement a little bit because uh, Professor Young, I think, made uh, the key points clear. I think uh, when we talk about this, uh, the idea of neo-colonialism, uh, I think uh, what we have to bear in mind is, of course, that uh, just the last ten years of um, uh, of colonial rule under Patton, these have been more liberal. Yeah, but before that, um, I think this was also uh, quite restricted, as Professor Young was saying. And I think uh, in terms of uh, uh, possibilities to participate, uh, he's absolutely right, there's much more. The, I think why people talk about uh, neo-colonialism is I think it's much more a cultural idea that now the, uh, there's a feeling that they've been pressured to become different kind of people, Chinese. But actually, the British never tried. If the British would have tried to create a Hong Kong identity, they would have been extremely successful, but they never tried to create a, a, a Hong Kong unique identity. Um, for the question on the uh, failure of the democratic Western democratic system, I think it's you can't compare this because um, the election committee and how it is comes to, to, to place is very different from the U.S. Yeah, in the U.S., you have elections who then vote for electoral uh, uh, college, which is not existing in, in Hong Kong. It's very, very uh, limited in this regard. But you're absolutely right about the pro-business influence. And you can see this, uh, and there was the hope, of maybe somebody still remembers, in 2012 when C.Y. Leung was elected, that people said, well, he will now move away from this influence of the pro-business uh, groups, yeah? because it is a very big uh, problem. Okay, thank you. So, like what uh, Professor Zhang has talked about, um, how ch um, Hong Kong used to be a chess piece, an experiment of the um, one country, two systems experiment. And do you see how the progression from one country, two systems to no interference to pro-achievement then to national security, how, like, how is this system and how is this progression viable when we look at the issue of Taiwan? So that's my question. How is it viable and... How can it be implemented um, to Taiwanese unification with China? 
you mean the one country, two system, uh, the, the, the whole scheme, how it will be imp implemented in Taiwan? How viable it is and how feasible it is. And the whole progression of how it became, um, from how it became uh, national security. Mm -hmm. uh, for Taiwan? <laughs> if you want to answer that, you can. I mean, I think it is interesting the connection here between Taiwan and Hong Kong. They're supposed to both be one country, two systems. Yes. And we just had the election in Taiwan, which isn't exactly going towards one country, two systems. Um, so is there some linkage here, or is, uh, is, is one country, two systems finished? Is, has it got a future? Is that... In Taiwan, yeah. But I think Taiwan people already refused, refused this kind of scheme uh, 30 years ago and uh, of course now. So uh, I don't think there is any possibilities China still have to, in, uh, to, 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 to use this one country, two system plan in Taiwan. And also I, I think China, it seems, like, it, it seems that China is planning to give up the whole uh, one country, two system scheme, uh, no, no, no matter in Hong Kong or in Taiwan, because mm, the, the whole uh, circumstance in the international uh, world is, is all changed. And, and, and now I think uh, China has realized that uh, it's just no use. <laughs> yeah. And, and uh, uh, the things in Hong Kong, I, I don't know if it's proper to say that the the one country two system system uh, uh, one country two systems is f uh, got a failure in Hong Kong, but many Hong Kong people think so. So yeah. Um, do the other speakers want to comment on that? I think it's an important. Yes, issue. I think um, if you look at, I totally agree with uh, Zhang that um, Hong. I think the support rate in Taiwan for one country two systems is single digits, uh, or uh, so it's 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 and it's been for a long time. Nobody believed in I think Bailang is still believing in this, the, the white wolf, yeah, but um, nobody else. And um, what actually, if you look at the uh, uh, meeting with Xi Jinping and Ma Yingzhou, there's this argument, this is actually transformed one country, two system. When we go from one country, uh, two systems, to one country, two governments. And even this, I think, is rejected now uh, through the election of uh, Tsai Ing-wen, so I don't see any, any progress in this regard. Just very quickly. Uh, I still believe in one country, two systems. Um, <laughs> we, uh, I mean, we just, we just have to change a few things, but uh, <laughs> I think they need to disengage, uh, and we need to be, have more dynamic leadership in Hong Kong. Uh, but look, uh, that Deng Xiaoping little book <laughs> is actually very interesting uh, because when he talks about one country, two systems for Taiwan, he doesn't, he's not thinking about the same one country, two systems that we have for Macau and for Hong Kong. It's, it's, it's the idea of one country, two systems at its core, right, that there is one China, that, and that comes first, and then everything else is sort of negotiable. And he does say that, you know, the system that we have for Hong Kong would not be the same for Taiwan. So if you take it at its core, I don't see why uh, it's not possible but I understand the, the political reality right now. Okay, I think we've had enough on that one. Because other, sorry, <laughs> I, I, uh, other people are waiting. Uh, um, 
Okay. Here with the. Oh, sorry. Pick the person. Have you got a microphone? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Uh, I'd like to ask Professor Young. Uh, recently, there are more and more concerns in Hong Kong's education from the TSA test in primary school to recent student protests in Hong Kong University. So I'd like to know what's your personal comment on this, and are there any associations with Beijing government? Yeah. Okay, very quickly. Uh, the TSS, uh, TSA, sorry, I don't think is necessarily related to what's happening with the student protests at Hong Kong University. I think there are two separate issues. One is more about education policy and then how parents and students should get involved in education policy. So I think I'm not too concerned about that issue. But yeah, what's happening at, the, at, at school, unfortunately, is, uh, is much more um, of concern. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's, you, you, can't, you can't find evidence of direct mainland uh, interference. There's no evidence of that. But it's through these indirect ways of through the chief executive, through his appointees, um, and then how it impacts on the university. And it's, of, I think, of grave concern. Um, and now we're seeing the tension between our president and students. Um, and uh, we're going to have to watch to see what, what will follow uh, after this recent events where they had uh, stormed, or they didn't storm the room, but they kept the uh, members of the council uh, sort of detained in a way for a few hours, and whether there might be a criminal prosecution that follows from that. Right? We're all watching that very closely. Now, at LSC, we pay great attention to gender balance, so I'm trying to find a, a woman asking questions. We've had lots of men right at the back in the middle, I think, and we haven't had anyone from the back yet either. So... Are there any uh, practical measures being taken now to really try and enforce um, a unique identity which is really very separate from mainland China? Thank you. Okay. Just answer directly. Okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, thank you very much for the question. I think it's, um, it's a very good question, very, very difficult to answer because uh, you can see there are similar elements. As I said, uh, um, if we talk about Hong Kong identity, everybody mentions it there is still a cultural element like uh, language, uh, for example. But also at the same time, uh, people say um, that um, uh, language should not, should not be an issue. Um, so for example, English would be enough. Uh, and it's more about the idea that you, um, you're dedicated to, to Hong Kong. And this is one of the key, key issues that you state. Your, your fate is linked to Hong Kong. So you're not just going through, as, for example, these anchor babies uh, would do. You just get an ID, and then you go away, and then if you need it again, you come back. Um, so I think this is one of this, uh, so some attachment uh, to, the, to the city and uh, these idea, I think fairness is the bottom, bottom line. Yeah, the rule of law, uh, things linked to this. And um, uh, when we look at the localism discourse, there are attempts by the, all these different groups trying to define what is um, Hong Kong uh, identity, and we have to wait 
uh, which of these uh, becomes then uh, more dominant. When you look at the uh, presentation, civic passion is maybe the most powerful of these forces, and they came very close to getting uh, somebody, uh, their leader, elected in the last legislative election. It might be this time they, they will uh, succeed. And they have a very interesting, again, cultural-based uh, identity, and uh, they might then yeah, push this through. Hong Kong Indigenous is just running at the by-elections. They are much looser in their uh, identity. I think it's uh, still too early to say which one become, becomes dom dominant, but it seems that uh, all of these very popular ones have a strong cultural element, pop cultural element, which makes them different from China, because this is versus something you have an emotional attachment uh, to this. Thank you. Okay, we have lots of hands going up now. Um, okay, we haven't had anyone from this side for a while, so maybe down the front here. Thank you for your talk. Um, I wanted to ask a question about free press, and given how much is at stake, um, given that identity is going to be a big issue, and I think media is a big uh, force for influencing perceived, uh, self-perceived identity, um, to what extent do you think that Hong Kong media has been captured by, uh, I guess, um, business interests, and uh, will this continue, and will this lead to an inexorable move towards public opinion being guided towards something that's uh, seeing things as more of as how China would like things to be seen and, I guess, effectively hijacking off this identity project. I don't want to respond to that. Oh, okay, sure. Okay, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, very interesting question. I think um, you're absolutely right. There is a lot of... Um, yeah, business interest. As you know, the Alibaba just bought Social China Morning Post. Uh, this has been going on for a long time, and basically from the mainstream media, there's only Apple Daily, which is still uh, promoting or uh, reporting more uh, even-handedly on the uh, uh, pan-democrats. I think what we can see is, uh, uh, especially among the younger generation, a uh, 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 very significant lack of trust in mainstream media, uh, and that's why we have all these online media. Uh, so I think, and these online media actually, they might uh, move towards promoting this identity. So you can see that all these localist groups are very, very strong in online media. Civic Passion has this whole Passion Times uh, huge uh, media uh, conglomerate, and uh, talk to young young aspirations. I said, what is your plans for the future? We have to set up some media, uh, online media. This, everybody is trying to do this. So I think in this regard, you're absolutely right. They try to push this mainstream media. I don't, I don't think they have any uh, future in this regard. I totally ag agree. Uh, main, I think main, uh, the traditional media uh, already did not uh, play uh, the less and less important role in a uh, role in Hong Kong, and uh, I think today uh, the mainly uh, opinion leaders uh, they the the battlefield for them is social media. So many individual opinion leader just has a great power, much more great power than the traditional media. So make the situation more uh, complicated and uh, s split into the, yeah, yeah. Um, right in the middle here, this, uh, yes. Yeah. 
um, Hong Kong has been a puppet state of China for a long time. So what do you think of the future of Hong Kong will be with like on the one hand the rising power of China and on the other hand the kind of independence of Taiwan? So what do you think? All right, okay, that's a very big question. Um, uh, What's going to happen in the future? Yeah, yeah what, so yeah, as always, you know, the uh, political scientists are very good in predictions, as you can see from the prediction of the collapse of the, uh, of the Berlin Wall, and nobody knew this. Um, so it's very difficult to predict the future, but I think um, what you mentioned is very, very important, um, the relationship between Taiwan and Hong Kong. So from the last uh, elections, uh, uh, Mr. Lee, we talked about this yesterday, that so many Hong Kong uh, uh, young people went over to look at uh, what's, what's going on in, in, in Taiwan. So I think this is, there is definitely a learning process uh, going on there. And if we see then this younger generation entering electoral process, which I think is quite interesting, if you think about the disillusionment of uh, the younger generation with the system, they still participate in elections, which I think is quite remarkable, because they could say, no, we just don't want to do anything, we do our own revolution or something. No, nothing like this is going on. So I think this is very, very interesting um, uh, in terms of uh, development. I don't think at this point I can, can't see there's a majority for some of the more radical uh, ideas of localism, but for the underlying feeling that something is going wrong and we have to we have to concentrate again on Hong Kong. I think uh, all mainstream parties on the pan-democratic side will move on to, uh, to this bandwagon. And you can see even the Democratic Party in the district council election, the young candidates put forward, they all stressed, we are Hong Kong born, we work for Hong Kong. Yeah, so I think this is a trend forward. Um, okay. Um, so, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, with the stripy shirt, yeah. Right at the end. Uh, I have a question for Dr. David. Uh, as you said, the uh, localism is challenging the nationalism. And I want to ask, what is the negative influence of the Chinese economy as a whole if the gap between those two are still increased in the future? Will they create the trading barriers between two places? Thank you. Okay. So, um, if I said it correctly, the negative impact of the Chinese economy. Yeah. Ah, okay. Um, yes. Okay. If I said it correctly, then I think what um, what, we, what I could answer is that, um, for example, issues of uh, parallel trading, yeah, uh, in uh, the northern uh, territories, um, definitely contributed to the to the. A success of some of the candidates in the district council elections. So um, the, yeah, what I'm trying to say that the, the rise of the economy in, in, um, in China has contributed uh, to localism in terms of more individual tourists, yeah, which brings up rent and um, uh, um, yeah, other, other issues associated uh, with this, uh, and um, yeah, more demand for goods from Hong Kong, which then rises, uh, ra uh, raises issues of, of parallel uh, traders. So I think now when we th see apparently what we learned, to I think more today uh, in this forum about uh, prospects for Chinese economical growth, um, I think uh, there, there might be a, a 
I don't know. Uh, it's very difficult to answer. Uh, uh, a chance um, of, or there's, there's definitely a potential for the Hong Kong government uh, to focus on areas uh, of domestic economic development, development which is delinked from, from, from China, for example, the whole um, uh, creative sector, uh, and I think this might then actually contribute to um, yeah, better, better relations across, across uh, this mini border. Yeah, I don't know if this really answers your question. It's very Do you want to add anything to that, Simon? Okay, the gentleman right in the middle there, because I know you've been waiting a long time. So. Sorry, I'm making you really run around here. Uh, hi, uh, this is not actually a question, it's a comment. Uh, so, so, so the incident of Libor... Short one, please, very yeah, short. Very short. Yeah. Yeah. I'm very surprised that the incident of Libor was, was mentioned today. And um, just before, just after the incident, I, I, I have been making uh, discussion groups and posts on the Chinese Kora Zhihu, and the posts were removed in less than 24 hours. So, um, yeah, and and uh, also the June 4th incident was mentioned. That's from Ms. Zhang Jieping. That's very more surprising. Uh, before coming to the event today, I thought the event was going to be. Uh, pro the Chinese Communist Party. Could, then, could, could you, could you then, I think you've uh, made your point, could you keep the yeah. focus on the, what the discussion yeah. is about A, a very Hong big Kong. thumbs up for yeah. LSE, LSE though. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Good, okay. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Um, so, okay, I think we haven't had anyone from this side and we're getting very close to the end now, so another woman please, yeah. That's good. Uh, hello. Yeah, I want to ask uh, Ms. Zhang about the way of uh, news reporting in different systems. Uh, in the case of the umbrella movement, we know in uh, the CCTV international channel, they, mm, they are more about the government and the official um, claims. And in, well, in the British channels like BBC, they are more protesters and the journalist um, is walking around the road and uh, asking for the protesters and more aggressive claim on the road. So I want to know if uh, Hong Kong media tries to um, combine these two views, these two styles, or they will keep the Western style to... Mm, report the issues? Um, I think Hong Kong media split into totally different two sides. And the, the pro-government ones uh, just interviewed the, the, the government and the, the pro-government parties and the, the uh, pro-democracy pro ones just like Apple Daily, uh, just like you said, uh, uh, interviewed a lot of protesters on the, on the square. So if, if you want to know the truth of Occupy Movement or Occupy Central Movement during 2014, you need to buy at least three or two newspapers together so that you can, you can map in the whole picture. Yeah. This is the real big problem for, for Hong Kong media now. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. 
Uh, can I just ask a short question? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's cheating, yeah, but uh, you're, so, you're cheating um, so boldly, I'll let you yeah. get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. Go on, but so quick, because we have run out of time. Yeah. Uh, I, I would like to ask Professor Young, regarding to the radical movement of happening in Hong Kong, there are a lot of disappointment arising from the mainland chi mainlanders in China, because we, our government have issued a lot of favorable policies and this economic support to Hong Kong. Even though this involves a lot of value judgment, but we think that it's essential that we must eliminate this kind of independence minds that happens both on, on both sides. So what do you think should be done, both in short run and in long run, in order to prevent our, our country to be tear apart? Thank you. Quick. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, one minute. Uh, Look, I, I, one thing I'll just point out, I think, uh, that we need to really think about. These days, everyone's talking about innovation and entrepreneurship, right? I mean, that's the drive. That's our future. And I think many of you are pretty excited about innovation and entrepreneurship. But, of course, that is about individual thinking, isn't it? It's about independent thought, creativity, right? So there's a contradiction here. If you promote that, and then at the same time, you then say, well, you can't have a independent mind when it comes to political matters, right? you're stuck. You're stu and, and there's no way around it. Um, and so I think you know, one has to really get a coherent uh, picture uh, and, and approach on um, you know, how to move ahead uh, and, well, in an orderly way with stability. Um, and uh, we haven't quite seen it yet uh, so far. So I, I, I think I mean, this is a good. You want to just finish on that, then? No, I'm sorry. I, I just have a question. Okay. Oh. <laughs> oh, is it okay? Are we okay for time? Well, a question of, from the. Are you going to ask the audience? <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask oh. Professor. Oh. Sorry, a very small one. Uh, because, Professor Yang, you just mentioned that uh, you, you, you still believe in one country, two system. Uh, I just want to ask, because this is a very vague concept politi politically uh, mentioned by Deng Xiaoping. What, what do you think is, is one country, two system, actually, in the, it's, the, it's the core value? Or, and the, what is the bottom line that Hong Kong needs to protect, can make Hong Kong is Hong Kong? <laughs> Look, I, I don't think it's, it's, a, it's a vague concept. In fact, I'm, I'm holding it in my, in my hand, right? It's, it's uh, the basic law. So from, from, from the lawyer's perspective, right, it, there are very clear answers to a number of questions, right? Um, and so for the day-to-day -day nuts and bolts of the basic law in one country, two systems, there's no problem. And our courts have given lots of judgments to help elaborate on this. But where we're what we're finding difficulties is where there are gray areas, right? And one area, of course, is this area of cross-border criminal investigation, right? Um, because there is no sort of extradition agreement between mainland and Hong Kong. We've been talking about that for ages. Right? And so I, I see these conflicts as opportunities, right, to try to sit down and work things out. Right, and that's how I hope, optimistically, uh, that we would see this conflict and other future conflicts.
I think we really do have to finish that. And I, I, would just, I think this is a good point to finish on because we need creativity, new thinking, new generation. A lot of these ideas actually came out of the Cold War context, you know, not even the 1990s, which again is over nearly 20 years ago. So, you know, new generations, new thinking, that's why we're here, right? That's what the LSE is for. And we got, had a great discussion with very diverse views and in a very civilized way. So I'd really like to thank uh, all of the presenters and the audience for your questions. Now here comes to the end of the session. Uh, just let me assure all the audience in, in this theater, this is an independent event, okay? Um, so for the audience who have chosen the uh, abolition of one-child policy panel, uh, please come back in 10 minutes. If you choose the um, institutional reasons for China slowing down, unfortunately, Professor Xu Chenggang is here, so unfortunately he, he couldn't attend. And there will be a re replacement panel on uh, inequality in China. Thank you. I'm always optimistic. I'm always optimistic. <laughs> I see. They, they should have taken the political right. I think that was a big mistake.